Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Gary Gerstel, Helen Thompson and I are going to try and make sense of what the hell just happened. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's 7.45 in America. I've turned on the telly. Ohio, do we know Ohio? I don't know how I'm going to get through the night. In Ohio, I don't think, I mean, I think what we see here is that Joe Biden's also benefiting from early vote there. This definitely didn't go as planned. Um, They just called Ohio for for Trump. Um, I think when the night started, many of us didn't even have Ohio on our radar, but... Well, it's about 10 o'clock, and... Dreams of a Biden landslide are gone. Right there, gets Trump down to 273. So imagine that, right? So then, if you're looking around, Joe Biden, you have a chance... This time it feels like, all the way along, it's felt like Biden was winning, and then maybe he wasn't. And now he is again, and then maybe in an hour, he won't be. But look, we feel good about where we are. We really do. I'm here to tell you tonight, we believe we're on track to win this election. It's it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And as far as I'm concerned, we already have won. So I just want to thank you. So I think we should um, time date this. We're having this conversation at quarter past 12 p.m. UK time. So Gary is on the east coast of the US. So Gary, it's 7.15 with you. Yeah, AM. That's correct. Yes. Uh, did you sleep at all? Yes, yeah, slept about two hours last night. Same as me. Helen? Well, I did a bit of sleeping. I'm not really sure how much and quite a lot of watching and mix them up in ways that probably weren't good for me. So we're going to try and make sense of what just happened. But of course, what just happened hasn't finished happening um, and we will need to speculate a bit as we speak now there are just some indications that joe biden might be able to eke out an electoral college win and donald trump has given strong indications that he's not at all happy with that prospect so one thought i had last night it was it was quite surreal i watched it on cnn and on cnn they do minute by minute updates and it's just you drown in real-time information but it's never clear what's actually happening. So it feels very volatile and changeable. And yet, as it settles, I mean, it's still very volatile politically this morning, but as it settles, one of the extraordinary things to me is that we've been through four years of remarkable upheaval. And then this year with the pandemic, the economic consequences, Trump's presidency seemed like such a changeable time. And you look at the map this morning, and of course, there are changes, Arizona and other places, and there are clearly demographic shifts. But it's so similar. It's so close. And it's so similar to last time. And some of the results like Ohio, it's as though it was one day on from four years ago, not four years on. How do we, Gary, how do we make sense of that? Is it, has some of the turmoil of the last four years been a bit of an illusion? Certainly by the the vote distribution last night. I was also watching CNN and the map, you're right, looks remarkably similar to four years ago. And it is remarkable that the pandemic and all the consequences issuing from that don't seem to have changed more people's minds. I think there are some other aspects of this that I have been ruminating about. One, the system of taking polls seems to be broken. The pollsters promised they had fixed the bias that affected their predictive capacity in 2016. 
it seems they haven't fixed the bias at all. It seems that those in the Republican camp who were claiming that there were silent Trump voters who were not going to talk to pollsters because they saw them as being allies of the deep state, they, in a sense, have been vindicated. Uh, I think Trump's strategy of campaigning has been vindicated, barnstorming 19 rallies over the last four days to get his base to turn out. And I also think race played a role in this election in complicated ways that we might want to unpack later. But I share your your first reaction, which is when a crisis of the sort that has hit the United States occurs, one looks for more volatility and more change in the distribution of voting in the United States. And the United States emerges from this as polarized as ever, and Trump likely to get more popular votes regardless of the outcome than he did the last time. I don't think he's going to feel any sense of repudiation. What did not happen last night has to be regarded as a rather stunning event. And by what not happened is no blue wave, no uprising of a really clear majority of Americans to say about the Trump years, this shall not be. Helen, when you look at the map, what do you feel? And, and you know, I share Gary's sense that the the virus seems to. I mean, that there was an exit poll, that, um, and there was some bafflement on CNN that an exit poll suggested that no one thought that responses to COVID was the number one priority. And it, maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that. Famously, the Spanish flu had absolutely no impact on electoral politics, and that was far worse than this. But when you look at the map and compare it to four years ago, do you see continuity or do you see change? Yeah, I don't think we can just sort of run a, a straight line, really, that runs from like 2016 to now in, in this respect. And I'd say there were two things that we've seen before the pandemic hit that would suggest that in contrasting ways, there was electoral movement going on. The first was the 2018 midterm elections when the Democrats did pretty well, particularly in the House of Representatives and were winning seats that involved affluent suburban voters, some of whom were people who had voted for Trump in 2016 and, would, and, and had moved away from them. So that was one dynamic that was in play that was different than what had happened in 2016. And, and the second was, I think, and I think I said this when we were discussing the election, just you and I, David, that if you'd stop the clock at the beginning of this year, then I think that on all the balance of probabilities, Trump was heading for re-election. He might have even been heading for re-election quite easily. And the reason for that was, if you looked at the data on the question, are you better off than you were four years ago, particularly in those Midwestern states that turned the election last time in the, in the Rust Belt, he was pulling figures in the 60% range. So then the pandemic came and put a intense you know, like microscope on all the issues of competence that Trump brings to the table um, as president. And the assumption then became, the one that Gary's articulated, is that this would be lethal for Trump. Now, obviously, there's a way of looking at it historically and saying that if you have an extraordinarily incompetent administration, an absence of federal power in the United States in the middle of a crisis, you would expect that to be electorally very problematic for the incumbent. But it's also the case that this is the first election in a, in a large Western democracy, leaving the New Zealand case aside, which I would say is not large, where the question of how voters perceive responsibility for the pandemic has been has been put to the test. And it may well be that lots of voters simply don't hold the federal government responsible for the outcomes of the pandemic and then have judged the election in in other ways. And I also think although the map may well look pretty similar, is is that this is still a different Democratic Party than fought the 2016 election. The Democratic Party has moved to the left. Hillary Clinton and, and Joe Biden aren't so different candidates in their relationship to that, but there is clearly a, a shift in the rhetoric in the um, Democratic Party that I think is part of the explanation as to why it hasn't done as well as many people expected it to do in this election. 
So, so there's so much there. Well, let's let's come back because we've got to talk about the Senate as well and the relationship between what happened in 2018 and what happened today. There does seem to be some evidence, and I completely take your point, Helen, that it's so hard to know that something that looks the same, but when something very dramatic has happened, may actually be evidence of change and not of continuity relative to a year ago. And there also seems to be some evidence in exit polling, early exit polling, of a slight shift in the the demographics and the makeup of the coalition. It does seem that Biden has done better with older voters. It does seem that Trump has done better with some minority voters, maybe with some younger voters too, that there is some shift and that could potentially have something to do with questions of competence or, or issues around the pandemic. Gary, do you think that, sort of to Helen's point, that there could be quite a lot of churn under the surface, which is being slightly concealed by some uncanny resemblances with four years ago? Uh, yes, uh, I I think there is churn in, in a variety of ways. The race in Florida was very close, and it looks like what cost Biden the victory was Miami-Dade County, which for years has been a Democratic stronghold. There have always been Cuban emigres and their offspring, anti, deeply anti-communist and deeply conservative and stalwarts of the Republican Party. So they have been there for a long time. But Hillary Clinton did much better in Miami-Dade County than Biden did. And if Biden had approached those levels, he he may well have won Florida. And so that means that there was a decline in the Latino vote and also perhaps a vote decline in the vote among young blacks. Uh, he clearly did better with older voters uh, from other parts of Florida. Uh, he was strong in groups of white working class voters in the blue wall states of the of the Midwest. I think he also has increased the Democratic presence in Republican suburbs so that they are less stalwartly Republican than they were. So there is churn and there is evolution. Helen mentioned the Democratic Party's move to the left as something that I think she was implying may have hurt the Democrats. It's interesting to think how we define the move to the left. Uh, there's the Bernie Sanders left of healthcare for all, free, higher education, heavy regulation of the economy, heavy state intervention into the economy. And then there's the other dimension of left, which is cultural politics and questions of race. I note that in Wisconsin, in Kenosha County, which is where there was a lot of racial violence this summer, uh, Biden's margin of victory was far less than Hillary's was some time ago. And it also seems that in various places, significant numbers of Latinos broke in favor of Trump, which on one level is very hard to imagine, given the contempt in which he seems to hold so many Mexicans and others coming from south of the United States desiring to get in. And I began to think, where have the Latinos been in the whole debate on Black Lives Matter? And as I framed the question that way, uh, the answer became pretty obvious. They have been silent. And I began to wonder whether in various places their vote for Trump was a reflection of the tension they are feeling with African-Americans and not entirely comfortable with the razor-like focus that Black Lives Matter put on the condition of African-Americans in the United States to the exclusion of many Latinos. And I began to wonder whether this was affecting the vote and patterns of support for the Republican and Democratic parties in various places. This has been an issue completely ignored by the media, and I, have, I can't even think of one article that I've read on this in the last few months. So the thing that is clear is, and there has already been commentary on this, and Gary, you touched on it, the thing that is not going to happen is some kind of you know, even small-scale realignment that creates a, a new kind of governing coalition for the Democratic Party. And in fact, to create a governing coalition looks incredibly hard. And so even if there has been churn, it's kind of you know, what's happened over here has been compensated for or neutralized by what's happened over here. And we have got, and we need to talk about this, we've got what is potentially a fairly nightmarish scenario for American democracy. So we don't know what's going to happen. It's, it's at least possible at this point, and a lot depends on the lawyers, a lot depends on how Trump reacts, but it's at least possible that Joe Biden could just about eke out a win. And it seems likely that the Republicans will hold on to the Senate. 
And when we we did an episode not that long ago about one-term presidents, and it's possible this morning, but by no means certain, by no means certain, that Trump will be a one-term president. And we looked at how relatively rare that is in modern history. And also the, the times when it happened, it tends to happen relatively decisively. So this will be, I think, a unique event in the last 100 years if a one-term president, and we are talking about Trump as well here, gets um, turfed out of office, but not really turfed out of office, kind of inched out of office. So that's part of the nightmare. And then we're going to have split government. I mean, Helen, do you, you know, when you look at the, the possible configurations of what might come out of this, does it look just as stuck as ever to you? I think it does. And I think that there's an argument for saying, I mean, there's, there's obviously a counter argument to what I'm about to say too, I should stress in advance. There's an argument for saying, I think that it will be more stuck with a Democratic president and a Republican-controlled Senate than with a Trump president and a Democratic-controlled Senate if it were the other way around. Because on the that scenario, you could see, I think, a path towards much bigger fiscal stimulus, probably uh, a stronger commitment to infrastructure expenditure, the kinds of issues in which Trump isn't a straightforward Republican at all and, and never has been. But a situation in which we have a Biden as president, with all the pressures that that is going to bring anyway, given who Biden is, and the Republican Senate still led by Mitch McConnell, who has, as we've already seen, has mastery of tactical technique in the Senate, that looks like a, a real structural impasse. And I think that's particularly consequential, perhaps, in terms of the impasse aspects of it on the, the economic side. It's going to put all the responsibility for dealing with the pandemic economic situation even more onto the Federal Reserve Board than it already is, because it's just difficult to see how any kind of fiscal stimulus gets through that combination. Gary, if I put it to you like this, that coming out of last night, there are sort of two possible fairly nightmarish kind of democracy is in trouble scenarios, one of which is Trump has already indicated, and I think no one's going to be surprised by this, that he might breach the, the absolutely basic democratic norm, the most fundamental one of all, which is that the losers accept they've lost, even if it's very close and looks a bit arbitrary, because all politics is a bit arbitrary. And Trump has indicated that he will reject that understanding which has been shared by all candidates in modern American history. And if he does do that, I'm not at all sure that he will carry that many people with him. I mean, I think that norm still holds, even you know, in these times. I mean, I may be wrong about this, but I have a feeling that though Trump could cause an awful lot of damage and disruption by holding on to the claim that this election was stolen from him. I would be surprised if he could carry enough people with him. The other nightmare is the one that sort of Helen just sketched out in a way, which is Democratic politics, where the, the the basic norm just about still holds, but the losers they accept that they lost the White House, but then they do everything in their power over the next four years just to make governing impossible, and Trump will play his part in that too. I mean, I actually the thing that makes me queasiest this morning is the thought of a very 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 narrow Biden win, and then just Trump trolling Biden for the next four years, and then with all the things that Helen said about the ways in which American government could get stuck. Which one scares you more? They both scare me, and I, I think they both present very serious challenges to the functioning of American democracy. This election could easily end up in the hands of the Supreme Court, and Chief Justice Roberts had a scheme well worked out before Ruth Bader Ginsburg died where he would have a bipartisan majority on the court that would allow it to rule in a neutral and respectable way so that the 2000 role of the Supreme Court would not be repeated and thus that the Supreme Court would not be implicated politically in handing a sitting president an illegitimate victory. The consequences of that would be immense. I think it would plunge the United States into a constitutional crisis. But the other scenario is equally troubling, and, and unfortunately, this is not a new story in the United States. The scenario you just described of Democratic president with a Democratic House, but not the Senate, 
and what happens in a situation like that. That, of course, describes Obama for significant parts of his presidency. And McConnell's mission in the last six years of the Obama presidency was to make sure that Obama couldn't pass any significant piece of legislation to address the country's problems, except for certain spending bills that allowed the government to be functioning. Any legislative accomplishments that Obama had were pretty much all concentrated in the first two years when he had control of both houses of Congress and nothing after that. And if, and that renders what an institution that along with Westminster has a reputation for being one of the greatest democratic legislative bodies in the world, it, it renders it paralyzed, unable to function. Presidents out of desperation resort more and more to executive orders. They, they practice a kind of authoritarianism, even someone like Obama, for whom authoritarianism was uh, the worst consequence to democratic politics, but seeing no alternative. We've also seen Trump increasingly ruled by executive orders and embracing the authoritarian tendencies. But the very paralysis of Congress for six years of the Obama administration is part of what made Trump appealing because it wasn't so much the swamp of Washington, it was the paralysis of Washington and the widespread feeling among Americans that Washington was not simply not functioning in any reasonable way to solve the problems of the American people. And if Biden wins narrowly and occupies the White House with a Republican Senate and a Democratic House, that scenario may play out again. And McConnell is content to play that game for short-term advantage. He's a great tactician, we've seen, but a terrible strategic thinker. He doesn't think long-term about the welfare of democracy or the welfare of the Republican Party or the welfare of the Republic over time. He's concerned about advantages in each biennial electoral cycle. And so I do see the continued erosion of American democratic practice and norms under this scenario, which is going to encourage people who think like Trump that they are legitimate in thinking they can act like authoritarians to break through what otherwise seems like an impossible impasse. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Helen, it was, I mean, in, in some ways, it was a good night just straightforwardly for the Republican Party. It was a good night for Mitch McConnell. But the, the Republicans seem to have picked up one or two seats in the House, I think they, they pick up a governorship. They picked a governorship as well. Yeah. yeah and so again, I, going back to where Gary started, the polling, we've had this conversation so many times, the polling was not good. And people's expectations were gravely disappointed. It may be that Biden is the just about the winner, we just don't know. But the Republican Party held, and it held on to the things that it wanted to hold. And so then the focus really is back on Biden. And I don't know if you were hinting at this when you said, given who Biden is, I mean, there was a view if Biden became president with a Democratic Senate, you know, he had some skills and experiences in Washington that he might be able to use to leverage to get some things done. But that's not what he's going to be facing. It's going to require a different kind of skill set, which Obama was very good at a certain kind of presentational politics. And when I said I have this kind of queasy feeling about Trump trolling Biden, it's not just about Trump, it's also about Biden as president. And with people starting to speculate very early on, will he last the four years and so on? He is gaff prone. You know, he's not always in control of what he's doing on the public stage. A very, very narrow victory under these conditions, to me, makes him really vulnerable. I mean, politically vulnerable to just relentless mocking attack. I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I hope we're not sounding too gloomy this morning. It's no sleep and everything else. Biden might win, and there it is. But I worry. Well, I think that there's always been a paradox about the Biden candidacy from the moment when it became clear that that is what 
was going to happen, which was essentially after the, the South Carolina primary and then running on to Super Tuesday. You know, on on the one hand, it was clear that the you know, the sense of gravity in among Democratic primary voters was much closer if we're just going to polarise it into Biden versus Sanders for a moment. It was much closer to to Biden than it was to Sanders. So the majority of Democratic voters wanted the least radical of the candidates on offer. And if you just looked at it in terms of what had happened in not just in 2016, but the general move away from the Democrats in every election after 2008, bar the 2012 presidential election and then the 2018 uh, midterms, when the Democrats occupied fairly centrist territory, that made sense. On the other hand, this was Joe Biden. This was a 78-year-old man who has struggled at times to control his syntax and to suggest that he's entirely on top of things. And he has, in some, I think, quite deep sense, been physically absent from the campaign for quite a bit of the time. In part, that, to begin with, was because he was in his basement. But if you compare the last few weeks of the campaign, the physical energy around that Trump showed at his rallies compared to um, how Biden was presenting himself over the last few weeks, this was this was very different. So on the one hand, you have a, the Democratic Party picking the candidate that was, if you like, in substantive terms, best able to compete in the centre and didn't have at least some of the disadvantages, I think, that Hillary Clinton brought to the table. But on the other hand, he was very, very open to attack. And there was a sense, I think, in which the party was campaigning as if voters weren't supposed to notice this. And I think that they have paid a price for that. And for that reason, I think you're right, David, that his presidency, if that is what is coming, is going to be very, very vulnerable. So, Gary, let's just go back to nightmare scenario number one, which is the ways in which Trump might refuse to accept the result. I mean, Trump may still, I mean, I think a lot depends on Pennsylvania, but it's just, you know, it's certainly moved in the last few hours. And there's a sense that the the votes that have yet to be counted might favour Biden. We, We don't know. But in a very, very close outcome, if Trump really decides to kick up trouble and to go back to that earlier point that you know it's rare for first term incumbents to lose and when they do lose they have traditionally lost by a reasonably decisive margin and this was a question I asked you when we discussed it before if it's very tight and he's got his supreme court potentially does he have incumbency advantages i mean he can cling on he can you know, he can occupy the oval office but apart from causing an enormous amount of trouble are there things he can do under these conditions to to resist the vote? I mean, last night he said stop counting, but they're not going to stop counting. Uh, they won't stop counting, but he will encourage his lawyers to, if, he, if it looks like he is losing, and we should be clear that it's not clear whether he is losing and whether Biden is winning. It could also be that he wins, Trump wins the election fair and square. But if he is losing, uh, and if Biden is declared a winner in the next couple of days, there'll be scores of lawsuits filed. There are thousands of Republican lawyers out in the field ready to file anything to challenge the legitimacy of the vote. This in the context of a campaign season in which Trump has been telling his supporters for weeks and even months that mail-in voting is by nature fraudulent and should not be allowed and needs to be stopped. Uh, Many states like Pennsylvania are are using extensive mail-in voting for the first time. There are likely to be kinks in the system. There are likely to be ordinances, rules passed that perhaps were not as clearly thought out because they didn't really know the challenge that they were facing. There are going to be all kinds of grounds under which this can be challenged. Uh, A federal judge ruling against Trump, I think it was yesterday or or the day before, when presented with the fact that there were big bags of votes, mail in votes, uh, sitting in various post office facilities that had not been delivered, as many as 300,000. He ordered delivery and the post office refused to do that. Well, who's got to order the post office at this point to deliver those? ballots and make sure they get counted. Uh, The only person who has the authority to do that in the short term is Trump himself. He's not going to order that. And so there's a good chance that will remain a cache of of votes 
that don't get counted. So there are going to be numerous challenges of this sort with half a population having been convinced that mail-in ballots are a fraudulent way of conducting an election. And the longer the uncertainty goes on, the more there is a chance of Trump supporters taking to the streets, willing to confront the counters, the supporters of Biden. Uh, Many of these people will be armed, so the chance of armed confrontation increases. If there are these legal challenges, at some point it will get to the Supreme Court. And he has three appointees on the Supreme Court. The last appointee, Amy Coney Barrett, who's been on the job for, what, two weeks now, a week and a half. The urgency of getting her on the court was precisely so that she would rule in Trump's favor on election matter issues. One of the key questions will be whether the Supreme Court has the ability to stand its ground as a check on excessive executive power at this very fraught moment, or whether Coney Barrett will join four other justices. This is the role that Trump expects her to play, and he will exert enormous pressure on her to do this, whether, whether she joins that conservative majority and makes his victory the result of a partisan political decision on the part of the highest court in the land, which is meant to stand above such partisan politics. And if that, now she may decide that she's a young woman who could have three decades on the court, and she may decide, we don't really know her at all, and she may decide that for her own welfare and the long-term legitimacy of an institution that she reveres to recuse herself, if she recuses herself, then Chief Justice Roberts will have a way of resisting the intense political pressure that Trump is going to place on the court. If the court decides in a partisan fashion on the nature of this election, there will be outrage among the Biden supporters, tens of millions of people outraged, and many of them will conclude that American political institutions as democratic institutions have utterly lost their legitimacy, and that thus that democracy in America sh- shall no longer be respected. Okay, that really is bleak. So let's, let's uh, say that's our peak bleak moment. I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, which I think it's at least possible that there is a consensus around the basic norm that what Trump might try to do is unacceptable. That if you lose, you make life complete hell for the people who've beaten you, especially if you think they won illegitimately. You make them wish that they had never won. You make Joe Biden wake up in the morning and wish he wasn't president. But you simply don't say things like stop counting and you don't refuse. If, if the result is, it's going to be very, very close, but things can be both close and clear. After all, it was very close and clear in 2016. And, you know, results can be declared and officially accredited. And that under those conditions, there might be public opinion pressure on Trump to leave. There might be internal party pressure on Trump to leave. And after all, Trump leaving can leave with his head held high, in a sense, now. I mean, he, he's psychologically, it seems, incapable of accepting defeat. But he can go back into the the real world, um, his version of the real world, and just channel it in a hundred different ways, his sense of vindication and persecution and victimhood. Isn't it possible that America's political culture and institutions can withstand this? It's going to be ugly and horrible, but they can, and, and that perhaps they will. I mean, I think I'm less immediately pessimistic on that score than than Gary is. I think that there's been a, a series of election, presidential elections now where essentially both sides have lawyered up in advance and this kind of scenario was in some sense waiting to happen again after 2000 and we now, or America I should say, is at risk of having another election settled in the the Supreme Court. But I do think that depends on a lot of specifics that are still uncertain now. And particularly if it's the case that the Republicans have retained control of the the Senate, then the Republican Party establishment has, has no interest in Trump trying to hold on in office in a very nakedly partisan way, using the Supreme Court for that purpose. Because there still is something, I think, that remains of the ideal of what not the whole of 
American democracy and what the American Republic is supposed to mean, but the basic idea that winners win elections and losers lose elections. I think in that sense, I agree with David. I think there's another risk, which is a somewhat different one, is, is that the closeness of the election and the issue of Biden and what I do think is Biden's vulnerability becomes something that brings immense pressure to bear very quickly on the Biden presidency. And what we saw last time was is that the presidency of Trump was destabilised really before the presidency even began. And we saw that in relation to um, the, the Michael Flynn situation in particular, and then the sanctions against Russia that the Obama administration put in place to try to stop Trump changing policy again on, on Russia. And I think that that sort of deeply political transition and then a presidency getting off to very destabilising start is something that we, that we could well see a repeat of. And that, I think, is worrying. Gary, I want to ask you one final question, which is just a straight sort of historical question um, about the American Constitution and, and how it was intended to work. This is not an originalist question. It's just a, I'm asking you this because I don't know the answer. But you and I, we, we, you know, on this podcast, we've discussed before, there have been very contested elections, 1876. Jefferson, when Jefferson first won, the, the election that's in Hamilton, the musical, incredibly close, difficult. Um, you know, you've described situations in which when electoral politics reaches a kind of impasse, you get these extraordinary sort of dances within representative assemblies, whether it's conventions or Congress. But as I understand it, the Constitution was in a way designed that if you get an impasse out there among the people, their representatives are under this system meant to discuss it. And possibly you know, some people are meant to make concessions, some people are meant to strike deals. But it's as it were, it's not meant to be thrown to the courts. It's meant to be thrown to the representative institution. So that would have happened if this, I don't think it can now end up 269, 269. But were it to be that, it wouldn't go to the courts, it would go to Congress. Wasn't that the original idea? And I mean, that's lost now, it's really hard to imagine how you then get a kind of deliberative resolution of a popular democratic impasse. But wasn't that the, the thought originally? Uh, yes, to put it in the simplest terms, the passions of the people and of the moment of, and of the parties can't always be trusted. And so there must be men of substance and wisdom and reflection, sort of on the Roman Republic model, who can consider all the possibilities and then make the right decision for the goodness of the nation. This is what the Electoral College was meant to be. And if you want to understand why the United States has this crazy system, that is the origins. And in an 18th century world where democracy was distrusted and the assumption was that the electors would be from the ranks of Jefferson and Hamilton and Washington and Madison, that these would be the electors in the various states, skilled in politics, experienced, being able to rise above party uh, being able to check the popular will and the interests of the greater good. You can imagine that this had resonance or how this had resonance. But this is no longer the role that the Electoral College plays. The U.S. still has the Electoral College, but the Electoral College is as, as full of passion and short-sighted advantage and I'm going to win at all costs attitude as any other part of the American political system. And so a mechanism that was set up in a way for the grandees of the Republic to get together and parlay and to arrange some compromise. That does not exist anymore. It worked perhaps for the last time in 1876 when the election was in November, the inauguration was then in March. So two days before the inauguration, there were two presidential candidates claiming that they were the victor and they were gonna stage rival inaugurations. And at that moment, the grandees of the Republican and Democratic parties met and arranged a compromise which, which satisfied the parties and permitted the Republic to continue. A question we have to ask about today is whether those grandees exist in any meaningful form in American society. And Helen referred to a confidence that she has that at a certain point, the GOP establishment may kick into gear and ensure a peaceful transfer of power. And I'm not sure anymore what that GOP establishment is. 
and thus I don't have confidence in their ability to arrange a reasonable compromise of this sort. And one of the threats to democracy, I think I am gloomier than you, and it may have something to do with my presence in the United States and hearing from people who had a lot of hopes invested in this election. In that respect, your distance from America may well be an advantage rather than my proximity. And I often felt that uh, when I'm actually in the UK. So you, in a sense, may be better placed to judge outcomes and what a likely future is going to hold. But one of the lessons that the Republican Party will take from this election is that decision they have made, in effect, to become a minority party where they no longer pursue a popular majority because of a perceived lock that they have on the Electoral College and a lock that they have on the Senate where 30% of the American population currently elects 70% of the U.S. senators. There were hopes that the defeat of the Republicans would be so bad that it would force them to reconsider the strategy. Their likely victory in the Senate and perhaps in the presidency is going to confirm them in that strategy and their comfort in being a minority party for the long term. And I think that is not sustainable as democratic practice in the United States. And that's where the anger among Democrats is going to mount. And that is over that issue is where I think a crisis about American democracy looms. So, hello, I'm, and I'm going to ask sort of the same question I did to Gary is the last one. You can have the last word on this. So as Gary described, there's that ideal version of how the republic operates when popular politics has kind of gone a bit wrong. Um, then there's the reality, even going back to the origins, even going back to Jefferson and Hamilton, whereas it, it's not a sort of meeting of minds. It's just dirty deal making. I mean, it's just dirty deal making behind closed doors as opposed to on the stump. That thing seems to have been foreclosed. So the the possibility that um, not great minds would meet and resolve this, but that really hard-nosed politicians uh, would grind out some kind of compromise where they can all think they took something away, having given something up as well. And that's gone. And so we move to the courts where it's much harder in some ways to do that, although the Supreme Court may have to do a bit of that, but it has to be dressed up in a different way. The thing that seems to be lost is really almost nasty representative politics resolving the impasses of representative politics. That seems to me the thing that's that's missing here. And that's a big gap. I think there's two things here. First of all is, is that there has been you know a consistent pattern in American politics whereby one party controls the presidency and the other party controls at least one of the of the houses of Congress. So the impasse, the, the difficulty that presidents have in, in legislating has actually been much more the norm than presidents who've been particularly successful in legislating. I mean, the story that was always told when I was being taught American politics was there were three American presidents who were successful legislators in the 20th century, essentially, Franklin and Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, and to some extent, Ronald Reagan, and, and that was that. So I think that the structural impasse is, is part of the nature of the separation of powers in that respect. But I do think what is true is, is that what we've added into this, what America's added into this since 2000, really, is a set of pretty close elections that have turned on turnouts, where there's not been a great deal of movement between voters, not no churn at all, as we were discussing earlier. And I do think there's a limit to how many of these kind of essentially tied one side manages to turn out more of its supporters than the other that any democracy can have without really pushing very hard on the problem of loser's consent. And I think that's where the American Republic has got to in that sense. It's had too many relatively close elections in succession. So it's definitely just had another one. Um, And it's now just gone one o'clock UK time. So it's just gone 8am where Gary is. Has anything changed while we've been talking? The betting markets seem to be going even more Biden's way. Uh, yeah, so the betting markets, which I've followed for this, are pretty confident now that Biden is going to eke it out, but it's not certain. And at about 3 a.m. UK time, they were equally confident that Trump was going to win, but it's certainly clearly favouring Biden now. It should be said that the greatest caches of uncounted votes are in urban areas, heavily minority, and also ring by suburbs that tend to be progressive. So the vote count until the end, I think, is likely 
to favor Biden, which also underscores the urgency with which Trump wants to shut the voting down as soon as possible. So we will, of course, come back to this. And I don't think there's much point in us speculating now, minute by minute, after a night of that, what's going to happen next. But we will return to this question as well as everything else that's going on in politics. The COVID numbers overnight in the US and in Europe were not good. This is happening in the middle of another kind of crisis too. We'll be talking about all of it. We'll try to get beyond peak bleak. We were also tweeting a lot overnight. Those links, including to past episodes that we hope might illuminate some of what we've been talking about today, are in our show notes. You can find everything you need there. And if you follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. We also recorded some of our responses in real time overnight while the roller coaster was rolling through. Um, lots of different people who work with us on this podcast and who've contributed in the past, Adam Getachew, uh, Stephanie Deepavine, Jane Darby Menton. Um, Gary and I have done a bit of that too. You'll hear a bit of that uh, in this episode. Um, and we will come back to all of those responses as well. We promise. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Again, if you're a Democrat at home, pick up your phone, take a picture. Uh, this is a map you love, right? It's not going to stay that way. But okay, so it's many- just gone midnight, and uh, the very first results have just come in from Florida, and the people on CNN are telling us not to get excited, um, and it could all change. And yeah, it looks like Biden is winning. Let's take a look right now. Right now, Trump is ahead in Florida, but he's ahead by uh, about 11,000 votes. Look at how close it is in Florida right now, 49.6% to 49.4%. Less than 10,000 separates the two candidates. Trump is ahead. He may well carry the state. If that happens, we're in for a long night. Those battleground states, they include Florida is in there, Pennsylvania. It's 2 a.m. Part of me really wants to start drinking every time the BBC mentions Florida. Keep telling myself that Florida is not America. Biden's still the favorite. Um, the betting markets have moved again. They've moved slightly in Biden's favour. It's it's not like four years ago. Um, four years ago, there was just this build-up of momentum. It suddenly, bit by bit, the penny dropped. Trump was winning. He was winning. He was really winning. This time, it feels like all the way along, it's felt like Biden was winning, and then maybe he wasn't. And now he is again, and then maybe in an hour... He won't be. And John, as you and I well know, no Republican has ever, and you've pointed this out, has ever won the White House without carrying Ohio. But it was, it was so critical. Obama took it back from George W. Bush. Interesting story in Ohio. Biden seems to be doing well with white suburban voters and also white working class voters in different parts of the state. Ohio may come into focus as a possible pickup state for Biden, and it would be a big one. So about an hour ago, I said it might change again, and it seems to have changed again. Trump is now the favorite. Um, this is different from last time. This is way more of a roller coaster than last time. I actually don't know what people know who've moved the betting markets, but the pattern seems to be clear. It's it's similar to 2016, but it's more pronounced. Biden builds up a lead, and then Trump eats away at it state by state by state. North Carolina is about to go to Trump. Ohio, we'll have to see. But um, it feels like this isn't quite the moment last time where I saw it happen in about two minutes in real time. But um, at 2.41 UK time, feels like something just moved. For a while, it looked really close and it looked like Biden had been doing really well and uh, Columbus and the county surrounding Columbus and also Cleveland and other major cities. But now that ship has sailed. So how are we feeling, Gabe? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it hasn't been, I admit that I allowed myself to think that Biden was going to win. To be counted. Right. Not for votes to come in. Votes right. are in. The votes right. have come in. We are waiting for election officials to count the votes as they do every single election also want to point all out of us kind of went into this uh, night Brown thinking County, it would be really nice if this was settled tonight uh, mostly to forestall what would come if it was going on for a few days after that 
but that clearly is not going to happen. Um, I mean, I also just think it's just incredibly shocking that, you know, uh, we're six months now, seven months into this pandemic, a quarter million people have died in this country. Um, unemployment is the highest it's been and all of these things. And yet still the Democrats cannot, you know, win, um, <laughs> decisively and with a big margin. Um, I mean, I think it also at this point in the night, it looks like a Senate victory. Lina, it looks like it's going to come down to the blue wall, the three states that Trump took in 2016 and that Biden's going to need to take back in order to win. And they are Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. It's going to be a long I want to join you in in thanking more than 60 million Americans who have already cast their vote for four more years for President Donald Trump. So it's now 8 o'clock in the morning, UK time. I've had maybe a couple of hours of broken sleep. I'm waking up to see that, um, well, I didn't need to stay up because nothing is resolved. It may not be resolved today. It probably won't be resolved by the time we record our our podcast. So some of this feels so familiar. Um, and a lot of last night felt familiar in this, the, the ways in which the results just came in confounding expectations. But it's different from... Brexit night or the night that Trump won first time round. So my memory of those nights is sort of new reality took hold and then one woke up to what felt like a a different world. And looking through the results this morning, the ones that we have, there's a sort of eerie familiarity to them in that not that much has changed. So there were clearly changes in the patterns of voting, who voted for the candidates, geographical, demographic um, divisions. But the overall picture is in some ways remarkably similar, places like Ohio and and the states that are going to decide this, the Rust Belt states, incredibly close. So it feels like waking up to a world that's the same as the one that existed before, the, the world that was created in 2016. But the fact that that world is still with us, that's what feels like the new reality that we have to to reconcile the unprecedented with. early vote and the mail-in vote is going to take a while. We're going to have to be patient until we uh, the hard work of tallying the votes is finished. And it ain't over until every vote is counted. Every ballot is counted. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.